Good morning. Um, good to see you all. And uh, as uh, Charlie said uh, a few moments ago, special welcome to those of you who may be guests with us this morning. Uh, my name is Kondo. I get to serve as uh, one of the pastors here at Mission Point. And um, man, this morning, if you're just joining us, then you're joining us in the last edition of a series of messages that we've entitled uh, Jesus Uncensored. And in this series of messages, we've been looking at some of the more challenging things that Jesus said. Frankly, some of the things we would hope that he would not have said because they stretch us um, in, in ways that are not necessarily always comfortable for us. And um, the messages we've been looking at have been centered around a section of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, you can feel free to turn there um, even now. Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus is giving um, a sermon to a bunch of religious Jews on a mountainside. And in that sermon, he just says some hard, hard things. And yet we want to lean into even the most difficult things Jesus says because we believe if Jesus says them, then they are laced with life rich and full and will be wise to lean in and to heed every word that he says. But, um, and the truth is, this morning, I think we are going to look at one of the most challenging things that Jesus says, at least in our cultural context, at least as far as... I can tell. You might differ in what you find the most challenging, most stretching, but for me, this one is the most stretching, the most difficult to, uh, to prepare for, the most difficult to, to think about in terms of what living it out actually looks like. And uh, we're going to get right to it. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start reading at verse 43. And we're going to read this entire section of Scripture, or at least to verse 47. And then we're going to come back and attempt to unpack it. So I trust you're there. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we're going to have the verses up here on the screen. If you don't own a physical copy... We would love to get one into your hands, and it's really simple. End of the service, head to the connection corner, out those back doors, and someone there will be glad to hand you a Bible if you just ask for one. Our gift to you, and we could not be happier to be giving gifts. Um, it's not even Christmas yet, but this one is a really good one. So we're going to start reading at verse number 43, Matthew uh, chapter 5, and we'll read through this section of Scripture, and then we'll... Just unpack it a little bit, or maybe even let it unpack us. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. By the way, that phrase is just Jesus' way of saying, so that you will show that you are children of your Father in heaven. Evidence that you are just like your dad. He, your Father, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he, your father, as you can hear outside, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Rhetorical question. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing 
more than others. Do not even pagans do that. Okay. This is a tough one. So, um, Jesus starts by quoting um, what would have doubtless been the most well-known and the most widely embraced command of all in that culture. He quotes the command that says, love your neighbor, and in parentheses, hate your enemy. By the way, the original command does not include hate your enemy, but Jesus is quoting the command as it would have been understood in that context and the way it would have been lived out in that particular context. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And gosh, not even a single soul would have even subconsciously resisted what Jesus said in quoting that command. Everyone loved the command to love their neighbor. It was a crowd favorite. It wasn't just the well, most well-known. It was the most widely embraced. But what they loved most um, about this command to love your neighbor um, was that they had massaged and molded this command um, to mean what they wanted it to mean for them. So they loved this command because they heard it the way they wanted to hear this command. And what they heard when Jesus says, love your neighbor, was love the people that you like who are like you. That's what they understood. And hate the people who are unlike you or that you just don't like. Ah! Yes, Jesus. Amen to that. Love the people like you. Now, here's the way they got to this, by the way, because they had very biblical reasons uh, for believing the command the way they, they believed it. I mean, the rationale went something like this. The Bible says God hates sin. And those who stand for sin. We love God, which means we must hate what he hates. And in doing that, we've got to hate the people who stand for what God Hates And soon, that ideology evolved even a little further. And the religious Jewish community um, started to say, we are God's chosen people. We are God's moral flag bearers. We are his representatives in the world. Therefore, if you are not with us, then surely God is not for you. Because you're not special, and you're not select, and you don't love God, and you don't honor, obey God. Therefore, God is not with you, and we cannot be either. So neighbor ended up growing to mean a fellow Jew. Enemy ended up meaning the non-Jew, the, the Gentile. Those who don't look like us and think like us and believe like us and behave like us, those unclean pagans, they kind of disgust us. They are the enemy, the Gentiles. That's why, by the way, if you recall uh, Acts chapter 10, Peter, the, the, the apostle Paul, 
I mean, the apostle Peter, the apostle of Jesus, he has an absolutely painful time stomaching the thought that Jesus would consider forgiving and befriending this guy named Cornelius because he was one of those Gentiles. There is no way. He is the enemy. And Jesus had to break him and convince him through a vision that that was not his heart. So you can imagine when Jesus announces, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, the entire religious Jewish crowd is roaring, amen. Love the person like you who you like and hate the person unlike you who you don't like, because that's what God would want. That's how God feels about those people, those sinners, those pagans, those people who don't do things the way that we do things. They knew Jesus had to have been reminding them to love the people who look and dress and worship and think and believe and behave like them, people who share their interests. You'll find to hate everyone else. They are the enemy. Now, um, it'll be important for us to understand uh, that the Jewish religious community were not uncivilized. They were not um, barbarians um, by any stretch. So it's not like for them hating their enemy uh, meant that they would go around attacking Gentiles. They weren't necessarily cruel to those people, those others. No, they were a little more sophisticated. They, they hated their enemy by drawing emotional and relational battle lines. You may not have physically been able to see them, but they drew emotional and relational battle lines. You kind of disgust me. By virtue of some of the things you believe and some of the ways you behave and, and, and some of the things you, 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 you stand for, you kind of disgust me. Now, I'd love for you to ultimately disappear, but I'm okay with simply keeping my distance relationally and emotionally. I'm going to draw a battle line. If you were observing the culture, you would notice it wasn't a bloody culture. People weren't killing each other. They weren't going after each other in morbid and vicious ways. Everyone actually physically coexisted. But there were thick emotional and relational lines that said your life and your pain and your problems and your passions and your concerns are none of ours. Emotionally, relationally, you stay over there and we'll stay over here. You stay on your side and we'll stay on our side. You keep your distance. That's how they played out the command to, in their minds, hate your enemy. Now, it's interesting. Um, I believe every generation and every culture has its own version of this. We all define enemy very uniquely. And even within cultures, individuals have a way of defining um, enemy very, very uniquely. And in light of the definition of enemy that emerges in their cultural context, it had me thinking, what 
is our definition. How would we define enemy? Right, I thought exactly um, what you think. I think about those, those radical religious groups that want nothing more than to see Christianity done away with, which is what this Sunday um, that focuses on, on the persecuted church is about. It's about radical religious groups that are trying to extinguish Christianity all over the world and don't care if it's bloody and if it's messy. That, that's who I naturally think about. I think about those nations out there who've made it clear that they want to vanquish the United States of America. When I think about the enemy, I naturally think about those people out there in that big, bad world. But I wonder... If the Lord wouldn't have us start thinking about this a little more closer to home. And I think that was what was so heavy about walking through the process of engaging these words. Because I wonder if Jesus wouldn't want us to start not by looking out there, but by looking in here. I wonder if Jesus' primary concern, if he was speaking to us, wouldn't be about the enemy we've defined outside the walls, but the enemy we've defined inside the walls of the church itself. I wonder if Jesus wouldn't be more concerned about how we have made definitions that have brought this idea of enemy a little bit closer. And again, not people will be cruel to necessarily. No, we're fine to coexist. But if we're honest, people inside the walls, that if we were to be honest, they kind of disgust us a little bit. And so we've drawn these emotional and relational battle lines to create a little bit of distance. You keep your life and your pain and your problems and your issues over there, and we'll keep our pain and our lives and our problems and our concerns over here. But let's just stay on our respective sides, and I fear that there is a strong possibility that we've gone a little bit further than the Jewish community in the first century, in that we've not said us and them outside the walls, but I fear that we've started to say us and them within the church. Um, not too long ago, um, I was talking to a college student from our church, and um, we got onto the topic of politics, and uh, she shared some fascinating things with me, and um, it made me super, super curious, super, super curious, and so eventually my curiosity led me to ask the following um, question. Um, 
if you went home at the next school break, whenever that is, and um, you brought with you um, a, a fellow from campus, um, and you surprised your parents by bringing a handsome dude home um, with you, and um, you let them know that you were in love and that you were um, even beginning to explore uh, seriously some future possibilities. Now, take away the fact that that's a terrible way to go about it. But let's assume you did this, and I was so curious to know. And so I asked the question, um, which of the following do you suspect um, would be most unacceptable to your parents? If this guy was a believer in Jesus Christ who belonged to a different race, or B, if this guy was devoted to another religion. Oh, or C, um, if this guy was a Democrat who voted for Hillary Clinton. Any guess what she said? Did not even skip a beat. She said, my parents would get over a lot of things but not a guy who voted for her. Woo-hoo-hoo! She was serious. There was no ounce of humor in what she knew before I finished the question. There is no way my parents would accept a liberal who voted for Hillary Clinton. That would be a non-starter. So dumb. Not too long ago, um, an acquaintance cornered me in a, in a very public setting, and it was very, very clear that he was nursing a heavy heart. And um, before long, he explained to me that he really, really hoped that I would be able uh, to help him navigate a really difficult situation that was happening at church. And he explained that a brother in Christ um, who he had co-taught a Sunday school class with for a very long time suddenly wanted nothing to do with him and nothing to do with the class because he could not reconcile in his mind how anyone who claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ could have voted for Donald Trump. I had somebody tell me, I'm done with church. Why? Because I cannot worship in a room knowing that the majority of those people voted for Donald Trump. I'm done. No Christian in their right mind could have voted for that man. So dumb. And strangely enough, not as funny in this room. And I tell you those stories, um, not to help you to get to know me a little better. I tell you those stories to help you get to know you a little better. Because apart from a small group of people, I just divided the room. 
I just exposed a pretty thick emotional and, dare I say, relational battle line by telling you two and a half anecdotes. In a church service, mind you. Because the enemy is no longer out there. No, the enemy is now in here among us. Because when I describe this, this, you know, this handsome young man who was with her and voted for her and would vote for Hillary Clinton again, there was a group of you who literally felt emotionally agitated. There was a group of us who actually felt a little bit of disgust at the mention of her name, Hillary Rodham Clinton. That name shouldn't even be spoken in church. And at the thought of this precious, innocent grace girl considering life with such a clear Satan worshiper, oh, you felt a little sick internally over that thought. There was a group of you who felt disgusted over her clearly unsaved parents who would make such a narrow-minded decision based on such an arbitrary trait. That just irked you a little bit on the inside. When I describe that Sunday school teacher who could not fathom the thought of a Christian choosing the MAGA mantra and proudly voting for President Donald Trump, some of you yelled in your hearts, praise God, that dude's my neighbor. That's who's like me. I'm with him. I rebel along with that guy. I completely Agree with him. In fact, the, the fact that I called him President Donald Trump bothered some of you. Man, ain't no president of mine. Same story. Whew. Different sides. And these are not, be honest, these are not just intellectual sides. These are emotional, relational sides. You are feeling it right now. Disgust, distance. I wonder if Jesus weren't preaching this sermon, if he wouldn't be talking to his church about how we have now started to treat people within the walls. I'm telling you, if I said right now, and I'm not going to, a show of hands, if you agreed with or you voted for, da, 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 small groups would split, boy. Woo! If I stood up here and I declared loudly one side politically or another side politically, it breaks my heart. But I know that there's a population of people who would leave the church. In fact, I'm not going to do it, and it's going to bother some of you intensely.
intensely because you are longing for me to give you just enough of a wink for you to know I'm on your side of the line. Now you're just going to be wondering, can we go back to a church and we don't even know, is, is he, which side is he on? He could be poisoning our children. Woo! The lines have been drawn. Some of you will be like, hey, can we go out to lunch? I want to talk. Fine, if you're paying. But uh, <laughs> I'm not promising what I may or may not talk about. Now, I'm not saying we'll be cruel to each other. Okay, maybe a little bit on Facebook. But what I'm saying is we would rather keep relational and emotional distance. Now, we make it easy because we just don't talk about it very often. But it is a Jesus Uncensored series. Battle line. And the funny thing is, both sides have super biblical justification for picking the sides of the line that we've picked. Super. In fact, there is no room in your heart like, how is this even a question? Clearly, the Bible says. And equally as passionate on the other side, clearly, the Bible says. Battle line. And we've even quoted Scripture. Jesus' words are so relevant for us, maybe even more than they were for the religious community in his day. It was just a few weeks ago. Um, I was um, I was somewhere in my house. I don't even remember, but I got a very cryptic text message. And... Uh, the text message said, Kondo, I am so sorry, and I feel so sick over what happened today. I would jump on a plane and fly there if you think it would at all be helpful. My immediate response is, oh, that's so sweet. But what happened today? Then an attached article came through, hate crime reported on Grace College campus. And the rest of you, most of, rest, most of you probably know. Early last month, uh, a message was posted outside the dorm room of a black student that said, niggers don't belong here. Um, a sick and blatantly racist sentiment. Not out there in the big, big, big bad world, but among the people of God on a Christian campus. Talk about, by the way, a line drawn. You disgust me because of the color of your skin, and I think you should stay over there. Now can we can coexist. I mean, we can even potentially play on the same team. But an emotional and relational battle line has been drawn. This time, not around politics, but around pigment. And believe it or not, I don't remind you of that tragic story 
to speak about the wrongs of racism, although I don't promise not to touch on that. I tell that story to surface once again the battle lines in the church because when I started to tell that story, other than a few of us in this room, I divided the room again. Or at least I exposed a pretty thick emotional and relational line again. Us and them. One group disgusted with the other group and vice versa. Now relax, I'm not suggesting that this line is drawn around racism. Not racism itself. I'm not saying this line is drawn necessarily around pigment. I am saying this line is drawn around pain. Because if I asked you, show of hands, anybody who believes that that statement that was posted outside that student's door is wrong, I suspect most, if not all, the people sitting in this room would shoot their hands up in the air. That's not necessarily where I feel the divide that I am speaking about. One side um, reads those racist words and feels hurt and angry. And by the way, when I sat with the black students on campus, um, that's what I heard most loudly. We are so scared and we are so hurt. Does this mean that, 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 that people really don't want us here? Most of them don't even know us, was the sentiment. And then it, it turns to this, you know, this, this fear. How many people are looking us, at us that way? Uh, how many people does this statement represent? Can I leave my dorm room? Because now I don't know who feels what way about me. Because it's anonymous. I don't even know who said it. So who does it represent? And many, by the way, not just in a black community, it was beautiful what happened on campus. Many in the white community rose up and loudly condemned that sentiment and raged against this sickening display of racism. People even wrote us as a church. And by the way, every person who wrote us as a church were white people saying to us, we've got to do something. That was so wrong, and that was so out of line. What are we going to do? Um, I was blown away by both the response of the black students on campus and um, could not have been more proud of that. I was personally encouraged by the response of our people, and I, I say this because we're talking about race, but the white brothers and sisters in our church who were like, this is not okay, or the person who texts me just to make sure I'm okay. I, that meant so much. It was such a beautiful display in that Season. I loved, by the way, President Kadip's response on campus. But the pain was palpable. Unfortunately, the conversation took to social media, where every conversation goes to die. And um, 
the lines got thicker and the distance grew wider because here's what started to happen. See, I told you this community was racist. This is what we've been saying. There's no equality. And, and then the chance of, of white privilege turned even louder. Us and them. And these battle lines were drawn even thicker. But there was another side in this conversation. When the other side saw the post and then started to see the social media trickle, they were hurt and they were angry. Because, oh boy, here we go again. There go the unfair accusations again. There goes the lumping in of all white people again. There go these claims that all white people are racist. There was anger and there was hurt because that post was just going to re-aggravate these accusations all over again. I feel like I am trying, but everything I say and everything I do is wrong. And regardless of what I do, these things happen and then I get lumped in. I am personally tired of it. And you know what it turned into? I am not going to apologize again. That was the other side's response. We're so tired of being racist just because we're white. We're so tired of being accused of white privilege. Like we woke up one day and we went to the courthouse and we applied for it. We're so tired, by the way, of the double standard. How minorities can make jokes freely about white people. But if a white person even hints at a joke about a black person or another minority, they are racist and they are just the worst species on the planet. It is a double standard and we're tired of it. And this experience just brought it to the surface all over again. We are so tired of being punished for the crimes of our forefathers who we can't even name. We didn't do it, but we are forced to apologize and fall on our sword and apologize and fall on our sword. Uh, we are forced, the only thing we can do is take it, take it, take it, take it, take it, take it. Otherwise, we're racist. Sick and tired of it. And somebody said this to me. I'm not going to apologize. Even when, and if that makes me racist, so be it. And the line was drawn even further. I'm so hurt and angry and I'm so tired of being told I don't get to be hurt because I'm white. Like I've somehow lost that right. Hashtag disgusted. And all of this just makes me want to keep my distance emotionally and relationally. Now don't get me wrong, we can coexist, but we're not going to talk about much. Because by the way, if I try, it feels like there's no winning. And man, if some of you could say amen to what I just said, you would say amen, except you'd be racist. 
And so this line was drawn again, and it wasn't between who thinks racism is okay and who thinks racism is not. It was hurt and anger over the racist sentiment, and then it was hurt and anger over the racist accusations. And then we start looking at each other. And man, if I wasn't wise, I'd even take it a step further. That's why people kneel. That's why people say, oh, no, you didn't. That's divided the church again. I'm just saying, we don't have to go far to find enemies. People that we are a little bit disgusted with, um, and people would rather keep our distance from relationally or emotionally. Keep your pain and your concerns over there, and I'll stay over here, and I'll just post my stats and my scriptures to prove my side is right. Subtly, though, battle lines drawn in the church. Anyone else think Jesus' words could not be more timely? Look at them again, verse 43. You have heard it said, love your neighbor. A person like you, thinks like you, feels like you, worships like you, behaves like you, believes like you, and hates your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be or show yourselves to be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet and get to know and spend time with, and pursue only your own people, the people on your side of the line. What are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Everybody does that. Anybody can do that. Anybody can draw a line and stay on their side of it. Anybody can do that, Jesus says. My people should be different. They should be laboring to deliberately buff out the lines and connect with and care for people that naturally differ or even disgust us a little bit naturally. Jesus says, you've heard it said, and everybody else on the planet lives like this. But to my people, I'm giving a different order. Love and move towards and embrace and blurt out the line between you and the people on the other side. That's why I believe Jesus would have loud words to say to his people who are not just drawing lines. Remember the days when we used to talk about how the church needs to be careful about the world. Those days are gone now. If the church needs to be careful about the left. No, no, no. The church needs to be careful about the right. And we've drawn these lines within, and I wonder if Jesus wouldn't say, how can you be different in a world that does that already if you're dividing inside the walls? 
Love your enemies. Where do we even start? A couple of quick things um, before we walk out and talk about how edifying church was today. Two suggestions. Number one, um, pick a side. Pick a side. Yep, you heard me. Um, I believe one of the first things that, that Jesus might say to us is, is pick a side. And my prayer is that each of us would do just that even before we walk out of this room. A very cool story um, came to mind when I was thinking about this. And let me show it to you. Um, this is a story about Joshua in the Old Testament during a time of war. During a time of, you know, his people and the enemy and, and his people and the enemy. During a time of war. Um, this takes place. This is Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. We'll just put this up on the screen so you can see it. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Ooh, I shake a little bit when I read this. Verse 14, neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. End of the story. Tell me that's not a powerful encounter. Oh, this is so good. And I believe we have to start here by picking sides. Now, if there's any question about what's happening here, let me tell you uh, so you can feel a little bit of the chill of this story. Um, Joshua here is running into a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. There's only one commander of the armies of the Lord. It's Jesus. He shows up and has a little run-in with Joshua here in the Old Testament. And Joshua asks Jesus a ridiculous question. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Are you on our side of the line? Are you on the other side of the line. And Jesus essentially says to Joshua, how dare you? Jesus, are you on our side or their side? Jesus says, how dare you? I don't pick sides. You pick a side. Listen, little man that I created with my own breath and I called with my own breath. In fact, right now you are breathing my breath on loan interest-free. Let me introduce myself to you. I am the commander-in-chief of the army of the Lord. I don't pick sides. I am the side. You pick a side. Woo! Draw me into your little turf wars. Ask me which side of the line I fall on. I am the reference point. You pick a side. 
Are you for me or are you against me? And Joshua, you better make a wise decision here because there's only one side worth picking. Every other side is going to be annihilated when me and my squad comes back to wage war. The real question is whose side are you on? You pick a side. Man, this is such a powerful encounter. And if you pick my side, Joshua, then boy, you better bow in my presence. I am your commander. I am your king. And Joshua bows, and the story ends. Uh, we, we play this ridiculous game all the time. And I don't want to offend you, but if I do, so be it. We are playing an arbitrary game of picking sides that will not matter when the commander-in-chief breaks through the clouds and comes back to this earth. We are playing an arbitrary game of picking sides that don't matter to the millions of believers across the world who are being persecuted for sharing the gospel. Jesus is saying, don't draw me into your little turf wars. I am the side, and church, you better pick the right side. Are you with me, or are you against me, insisting on sticking to one of your sides because they become so precious to you? Pick a side. Jesus, are you on their side, or are you on our side? Jesus, pick. Jesus, are you more liberal? Are you more conservative? Which are you on? Is there more scripture to support our side or more scripture to support their side? Are you more black? Are you more white? Are you with the kneelers or are you with the standers? And we try and pull Jesus into these sides. Jesus, pick a side. And he would tell us the same thing. I am the reference point. It's not about you or them. It's about me. It's not about left or right. It's about up, frankly, where I reign supreme. It's not about black or white. It's about blood red with which I redeem and make the two one. How dare you come and start drawing lines again? It's not about an elephant or a donkey, y'all. It is about the roaring lion of Judah. Pick the right animal. He's the only one who will live in the end. It's not about our side or their side. It's about Jesus. And if you're with him, then you better bow. Because it's not about kneeling or standing. It's about bowing to the king of kings. And when he makes Joshua bow, what Jesus is saying is, you've got to pick my side and acknowledge I am the commander-in-chief, which means it doesn't matter what the sides say, what matters is what I say. And when you read Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, now I tell you, love your enemy. And if you've picked my side, that is not a suggestion. That is a direct order from your commander and your king. I don't care how you feel about it. 
I don't care what you think politically. I don't care how you feel historically. I have given you a direct order. And the question is, are you going to follow it or are you not? Are your lines going to be so important that you disregard the lion? See, we read the Sermon on the Mount and we think about pretty little Jesus saying his nice, cute words to people. He was such a good preacher. He is the commander of the armies of the Lord. And he's giving a direct order on that mountainside. He says, I say to you, that's an order. Love your enemy. Care for and connect with even the person who might naturally or politically or racially even disgust you a little bit. Because if nothing else, that's what I did when you were my enemies and I crossed the line and came after you to rescue and redeem. I'm so glad Jesus didn't say, well, I'm sorry, I'm up and you're down, so I'm going to stay on, on my side. I wonder if the first thing we have to do as a church is not go back to a place where we pick a side and we declare it is king over country. It is kingdom over constitution. It is his crown over my color. And I was even nervous for a little while about talking about this. I had to be reminded, Kondo, you don't stand up there primarily as a black man. You stand up there primarily as a son of the king of heaven and you speak what he says. I wonder if that's not what Jesus would want to call this church back to. And so I ask you, have you picked a side? Which side is it? Which side is the one that agitates you? Have you, have you picked a side? Have you declared that regardless of what agitates or disgusts, I want to go with what Jesus says. If I'm going to post about something, I'm going to post about him. If I'm going to spend my energies doing something, I'm going to spend my energies carrying his message of hope to his enemies so that they would have the invitation to life. And in doing that, here's a simple challenge, and then we'll be done. Listen to someone. Um, listen to someone. Um, I'm not saying let's all be BFFs right away. I'm just challenging us. Would we obey this direct order by starting by listening to someone? Um, I love what James says in James 1.19. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Doesn't that sound just like the culture right now? No! Think about how quickly we've reversed this. I am not slow to speak and quick to listen. I'm quick to get angry, and then I speak, and then I listen to my side, and then I speak some more. And what if we listen? Wouldn't this make us a little bit different? Wouldn't this help to blur the line a little bit? What if 
we listened. And we started to talk to each other. Imagine if we said, what you stand for really hurts me. But I'll put that aside to hear your hurt. Because we're living in a culture where, no, 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 my pain is more important than your pain. I'm frustrated about this. I don't care about your frustration right now. What if we said, I want to hear about your hurt. Help me understand. What your forefathers did haunts me. But I want to hear what it's like to feel held responsible for what your forefathers did. Let me hear you talk to me. I don't get how you're still hurt over slavery. Please help me understand. I want to listen. And the word listen means, listen means to, 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 to pay attention with the intention of understanding. I don't understand why the kneeling is so disrespectful to you. Talk to me. Help me understand how your brother in arms died on the battlefield. Let me listen. I struggle with the way you voted, but let me understand. I want to move closer to you. Help me understand. Jesus was so keen to understand that he put on human flesh so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. And I wonder what it would look like for us to start by listening. Man, I had a very challenging, you know, I'll confess to you, um, and this is me talking to you, and um, uh, I'm not saying Confederate flags scare me, but I am saying it does make me anxious when I see them like flying on certain vehicles or displayed in certain ways. And I started to realize it was stirring in me a desire to be emotionally and relationally distant from anybody who has that or associates with that. And I realized that's not what Jesus would actually want me to do. So I put out some feelers and set up a meeting with somebody who is very favorable towards the display of the Confederate flag. And we sat down and we talked. I said, help me understand. Because let me, let me tell you where I'm coming from. But I want to hear, what does this mean to you? I learned things that I had no idea about. Now, we didn't walk away agreeing, but we did walk away making Satan a little bit madder. And we did walk away making Jesus a little bit happier. We understand each other a little bit better. Now, we met in a well-lit place. Don't get me wrong. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> the point is, if we even started to listen, how different would this world be? Because the world is going to know we are his followers by the way we love each other and the way we unite with each other. And if we draw arbitrary lines, we blur the picture Jesus wants to portray to the world through us. And I'm telling you, if the church comes together and starts to listen to each other, the world has no chance. Light is going to break forth, and Jesus is going to be known. Pick a side and listen to someone. So Jesus, thank you for coming when we were on the other side and deserved to be. Thank you that while we were sinners, you died for us. Now give us the courage, give us the grace, give us the forgiveness, give us the humility, give us everything we need to take steps towards loving the people that we have put on the other side of the lines. In your precious name we pray. Amen.